Hey, it's Crystal quickly apologizing to any of you that attempted to listen to the podcast and my intro was all screwed up due to the fact that I had my tracks on loop. Not an audio engineer, people. This is how my quarantine's going. Anyway, I really hope you like this episode. Meredith was really great. Thanks for listening. And again, I apologize. I'm so humiliated. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, hey, it's Crystal here, sitting here in quarantine. I don't even know what day of the week it is or what's going on. It's, I hope you're doing okay. I know that it is so hard right now for everyone in the world. I think about it often. I sometimes wish I didn't feel it. (laughs) If that makes any sense at all. It's just so exhausting, the weight of worry on all of us as humans, right? I'm really happy to be here, though. I'm happy to have this time with you. I've been trying to find a place to support, you know, a place that hits my values, and I found one, and I'm going to share it with you. I don't know if by the time this podcast is released, if the fundraiser will be over, but it doesn't really matter because there's always people in need, and you can just donate straight up cash. So, But there's a person in the world that I admire uh, so much, and their name is Io Tillett Wright. And on his Instagram, he goes by Io Loves You. And Io is the host of a podcast called The Ballad of Billy Balls, which I have listened to in 2019. And it was the best podcast I listened to all year. And then that led me to Io's book called Darling Days. And Io is just an advocate for queer and trans rights, which is just basic human rights. Um, He also has a lifetime project called The Self-Evident Truths. I'm taking this from his website, created by Io Tillett Wright. The aim of the project is to humanize a vast community through the simplicity of their faces. It's photography, guys. Showing that we come in all shapes, sizes, races, and social strata, thus making it harder for people to discriminate against us. This project exists to spread awareness and understanding about the broader spectrum of human sexuality. We want to bring stories from within the LGBTQ community in the world so we can begin to erase the boundaries between gay, trans, straight, and other. So right now, Io has this amazing, amazing, like the biggest example of radical hospitality I've seen in quite some time. And if you buy a t-shirt that says, we are you, they're 20 bucks. And again, if the t-shirts are gone by this release, you can just donate straight up cash. Um, But Io is taking 100% of the donations and giving the money to any vulnerable queer person that's emailing him and putting priority to trans people of color and just literally dumping their dumping the money in their PayPal with no strings attached. It makes me tear up. I'm not crying over there. You are. I just, uh, you know, I bought three for my family, uh, my army of lesbians, Tracy, Allison, Leslie, and Laura bought four. So right there, it was like seven. And again, if the t-shirts are gone, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're straight, asexual, bisexual, Whatever you are, it doesn't matter. You can donate. You can donate. It just makes me tear up, this kind of stuff. And I'm just, yeah, I'm not crying. You're crying. Donate now, please. And donate often. And it's ironic that we're talking about crying because here we are, number seven, guys. Number seven. We have Meredith. Oh, Meredith. So good. This one's so, so good. And we cry a lot. We both cried a lot. Meredith has some fresh trauma with her father just passing last April, and she finds out on her father's deathbed that her mother had told her some lies about him her whole life, and it was just really hard. She also talks about having a really, really bad, creepy stepdad. You know the kind I'm talking about, and what it was like not to feel safe as a child and to not be believed as an adult. You know, it was really hard. It just, the whole thing was hard, and there were a lot of tears. That's Marvin, if you heard Marvin the cat. So for Meredith this week, I picked a quote from one of my favorite authors in the entire world, Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut said, we have to continually be jumping off cliffs and developing our wings on the way down. I picked this quote for Meredith because on her path to her truth, to find her voice, to find who she is, she bravely jumps off many cliffs. And, and honestly, sometimes she was completely blind doing it and she found her wings. And she literally just unfolds her trauma as she's living her life so she can heal. 
Often we stand as humans looking down these two roads. One is easy and it's paved and it and it's flowers and unicorns and rainbows. And the other is treacherous and dark and scary. And as humans, sometimes we just choose the easiest path. But not Meredith. Not at all. She is like absolutely fearless looking at those paths. And you'll hear her fearlessness. And you will hear that she is still such a soft, beautiful person. She didn't let her trauma harden her core. And often it can. She leaned into it and let it go. It was an honor to stand witness to Meredith's story. And thank you so much, Meredith, for sharing it with me and taking the time. And thank you for sharing it with everyone. So here we are, number seven. Number seven. One left in season one. Ah, I can't believe it. I'm so excited that we've come this far. And as always, go into this podcast with an open heart, an open mind, no judgment. And I love you. Thanks for listening. I am from Dallas, Texas. Born and raised? Born and raised in Dallas, Texas. I I left home when I was 16. Mm. And I got my own place because that was the best for me. Okay. And um, yeah, so I've been on my own ever since. Wow. So when you were born, let's talk about your birth. What did that look like? Were your uh, parents together? So my parents were together until I was about two weeks old. Oh wow! And were they were they dating or were they married? They they were married for how um, long? I have two older brothers. Okay. Um, and my parents married really young. My mother got pregnant at eighteen, and it was the sixties. So we all know how that goes. Oh you're yeah. Either brushed off to a commune, and then you come yeah. back a year later, and you're fine without child, or you get married. So they were from small town Texas, and they got married. And I have two older brothers, and then um, my mother was pregnant with me. Okay, and um, and she made some really poor choices, really poor choices, like cheated on my dad while she was pregnant. Okay, and he came home and caught them. Oh wow! And shoved her down a flight of stairs. Oh my! They God. got into a, a tussle. My dad is not a violent person. Having said he pushed her down a flight of stairs, that's not who he was or who he was. And um, so that initiated the divorce procedures for my parents. And, um, you know, it was a shame. My father loved my mother very much. It was a horrible moment for both of Mm. them. Um, But my mother was full of bad choices. Right. So that didn't start there and it didn't end there. Right. So you were born, your parents had already split, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. you were two weeks old Mm -hmm. and they were going through a divorce full, full blown at that point. So you're a baby. How old are your brothers? My brothers are, I'm 49, they are 52 and 54. Oh my goodness gracious. So she had like a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a Mm two-week-year-old-ish kind of. Yeah. So, and then she's going through a divorce. Yeah. Wow. So it was crazy. But all of, you know, her choices led her right. to that road. And not to blame her for the, you know, all right. of those instances, but certainly she chose to cheat in her yeah. relationship. And that never ends up well. No. In, in my humble opinion. It doesn't. And <laughs> not that you ever deserve to be pushed down a flight of stairs. No, to be, ever, ever. Ever. Ever, 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 no matter what ever. you do. Not cool. But no. still there's, you know, obviously your dad was... Uh, adamant about not wanting to be with her anymore for rightfully so. Well, no, that's not true. He wanted to be with her. He was, he was in love with her until the day he died. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Mm. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. We can take any breaks we need to Meredith as we go. Um, so my father just died in April. So I haven't talked about that very much yet. Now I'm going to go at it. Okay, so. It's going to be together. Um, anyway, he was in love with her until the day he died, and oh. he had remarried, but, um, you know, had even, unfortunately, told my stepmother that the only, he'd only been in love twice in his life, and she was not one of his loves. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, anyway, that's new information for me. So, um, anyway, he loved her. He wanted to be with her. He had started dating someone else not too long after their relationship ended. And 
he, um, my mother called him and said, I want to get back together with you. And he was like, all I've ever wanted is for our family to be together. And this was before they were even divorced. So he left his girlfriend, which is my stepmother. Wow. And, um, and then the next day she was like, I'm just, I'm kidding. I was just trying to make my boyfriend jealous. Oh no. And my father was like, okay, I can't go back to my girlfriend because now he was full of shame and all of these things that come with those type of situations. And, um, yeah, she made bad choices a lot. Wow. And anyway, so, um, they were, you know, they went through with their divorce and, um, you know, she was never kind to him and made it hard, made it really hard. Did she let you see him? She made it hard for him to see us, you know, really hard. And I don't think that as kids, my brothers and I ever really identified with the fact that it wasn't him. Oh, yeah. Parental alienation. Yeah. Right? Like when you're told a narrative. Yes. And, and you're he, only, you're a child. Yes. So you trust this adult person that's a parent. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's really crazy and really hard and all of those things that you're you keep thinking this is um you know it, you know we all have our parental issues right mm-hmm. so you're like okay why doesn't my dad want to hang out with me why doesn't yeah. he want this and mm-hmm. and and she made it very hard you know my father and I our birthdays were are 3 days apart and like I just never thought that I heard from him and in April on his deathbed I find out from my stepmother none of that is true that oh my gosh just this year Meredith yeah that you know he always tried to see us and that he would just sit and you know be sad on holidays and, yeah it made him struggle yeah all of those things and um so sorry oh it's okay um, you know during those holidays and she just wouldn't let him see us and I think that that's such a it's it's criminal on so many levels to do that to your children, yeah. do that to someone that you loved enough to have children with. Like, that's amazing to me that you would just look at that and go, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> I give a shit care. that my kids like, and then I'm not like speaking on behalf of your brothers or you, but I can only assume that the, the amount of like rejection you would feel and not feeling accepted by your other parent because you th- really do believe and think that they want nothing to do with yeah. you and yeah. how that can transform other relationships and manifest yeah. in areas. Exactly. And, you know, when we were with him, I grew up in a, although this sounds odd after that story, in a fairly religious household <laughs> and <laughs> my father especially. <laughs> and so when he had us, we spent all of our time at church. Which, as I, you know, was a teenager, I was like, why the, why the fuck am I here? Yeah, what kind of why? church? Like, Just... Church of Christ. Okay. And, um, you know, I was like, if you don't want to hang out with us, then just don't come and get us. Like, why are you sending us off to church camp? And why, mm-hmm. why this? Why that? And so, um, you know, there were struggles there as a teenager that we didn't communicate well. And, and all of that said, my entire life... I never, not one time, heard my dad say anything negative about my mother, Mm. even on his deathbed. For a month, I spent with him in the hospital every night, except maybe five nights, over the course of a month, and we had many amazing conversations, and not one time has he ever, did he ever say anything negative about my mother. Wow. That's unheard of. And she wrecked his life. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, his life was fine. The end of the day, probably much better off without her. Right. But (laughs) that Mm -hmm. said, she didn't make it easy for him. No. And, you know, thankfully, I say this all the time. I know that, you know, sometimes we're all like, oh, I want a a quick and easy death or I want this or I want, you know, I don't want to be sick for years before I pass away or anything like that. And I think that that's a huge struggle that people deal with when, as we age and we watch our parents start to fade and pass and what you have to deal with, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's or, you know, cancer or 
all the other but just like disability that, like they're not able to walk like move yes. their body like they could yeah. or dement it's just it's so the, many different a, things that take forever right take forever. and it's heartbreaking it is and so for me i didn't my father didn't have that we were very very fortunate um you know he had a stroke at the beginning of the month by the 27th he had passed and you know, we thought he was going to be fine after that stroke. He was cognizant. He could speak. And and we were like, you're going to have make a full recovery. This is going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you have to learn to walk again. Big deal, you know? Or maybe you don't ever walk again. Big deal. How, That's old, okay. how old was he? Very young. He was 72 Ugh. and yeah. just shy of his birthday. And mm. so... Um, and yours. And mine. And, um, yeah, so it was... Um, it was a very interesting, but so we had a month, almost a full month of hanging out together all day, all night. Mm-hmm. We sang together. We, mm. um, you know, he was, he was a very meticulous man and liked his nails to be trimmed and was a, you know, high and tight crew cut kind of guy and mm-hmm. clean shaven all the time. And so, um, you know, every day I would make sure his nails were trimmed and Aww. make sure that his nose hairs were trimmed mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. And I, you know, asked my brothers to shave him because he would want that. And so, um, you know, that, that moment was a, a lovely time for us mm-hmm. and it didn't drag on for years, which is a blessing. And yes. he didn't pass without us all having conversations with him, which is also a blessing. Yes. So the first night that my father was hospitalized, um, I was the only one to spend the night with him because we didn't, I mean, we all knew he had a stroke, but he was talking, he was cognizant. Mm -hmm. So no one thought it was that serious. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the night, everyone else went home and, um, my father and I had a lot of conversations and one of those was around my trauma Mm -hmm. and. um, Ooh, good. So, okay. Let me, let me slow you down just for a second. So you, how. They get divorced. Your parents get divorced. When does your father get remarried? How old were you? My father remarried. I was young. He was he was married three times. My first stepmother, I was really young, probably first or second grade. Okay. Um, and then they were married. I don't even know how long. Like, mm-hmm. I hardly remember how long they were married. Okay. Maybe, I don't know, maybe four years or something. Okay. Not long. And then they got a divorce and several years later, many years later, so 21 years ago, he reconnected with my stepmother, the woman that he dated when my parents were getting a divorce. And they've been together since. Mm -hmm. And they've been together ever since. And she adores him and loves Mm. him so much. and. You know, it's been an interesting That's transition. That's nice. Okay, so what about your mom? So my mom loves getting married. She um, has been married and divorced five times. Wow. Mother's last wedding. I happened to have a UIL competition on the same day, and I said, I'm, I'm not coming. I have a UIL. What is a comp- UIL? It's um. It's an inner school competition. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So school to school, high school, high school, junior high, whatever. I was in junior high, and I said, I'm not coming. And, of course, my mother asked me why, and I said, I have a competition, a theater competition. I'm not coming. And she said, it's my wedding. You have to come. And I said, I will catch the next one. Oh, my God. Wow. Didn't go over well. And But you're uh, telling me that from the – your parents divorced. I'm just making sure I'm understanding this. Like your parents were divorced. You were two weeks when they, when they split, Mm -hmm. they get divorced and your mom was married to, she was by, by that time, that was her first marriage. She married four other people by the time you were in middle school. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. My first stepfather, I didn't know he was the person that my mother cheated on. Okay. I don't even know. I mean, I really don't know how long they were married. Okay. Like I have zero memory of him. Mm-hmm. And then she married um, my next stepfather and left him with the next stepfather when I was oh, the in, pattern. Wow. With, when I was in kindergarten. 
Like I walked home from kindergarten with my big brothers and there's a moving truck in front of our house. And her next husband and my mother are loading up this truck. And they're like, we're leaving kids. It's like, how do you, what, what? This is crazy. And so we left and we moved from Dallas to Houston. And um, that, she was married to him until I was in sixth grade. And that was, that was the most unfortunate choice that she ever made. Oh boy. Oh boy. This was the third husband. Fourth. Fourth. Fourth husband. Fourth husband. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but not the one she's with now. She's not married now. Okay. Got it. So um, what was that like moving in, moving to Houston with this new guy that you probably, did you ever meet him prior? So I it was never just, met him. boom, you're living with him. Yep. Living with him. Um, my mother, my two brothers, myself. And then he had a, a son who was my same age. We, my stepbrother looked exactly like me. People thought we were twins all the time. And that was weird. Um, Whoa. And my, um, you know, my, my brothers look exactly like my dad. I look exactly like my mom and we don't okay. look anything alike. So, yeah. um, and then I have the stepbrother and who we look like twins. People think mm-hmm. we're twins all the time. Everyone wants us to be their flower girl and ring bearer because it's, oh, we're so cute. Um, so we moved to Houston and that's weird yeah. at best. Yeah. And, um, new, different school, new everything, different schools, kindergarten, so right? Started school in kindergarten, finished in a different school. My stepfather was a troubleshooter for a manufacturer. And so we moved pretty much every six months and I didn't start and finish a school year in the same school until I was in seventh grade. Oh my God. So he was something. Um, so he, um, I guess in, we were living, by the time I was in second grade, we were living in Chicago. We moved back from Chicago. um, And we moved back from Chicago, I was in second grade, and then we moved back to Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. And um, we were living in a small community, and, and this was a time obviously a very long time ago where kids really did just go ride their bikes all day. Mm -hmm. And when the sodium light came on, the street lights came on, you went back home and you drank out of water fountain. I mean, out of, you know, water hoses and, Mm -hmm. you know, kids were babysitting kids and, you know, it was, it was different. Free for all. It was. So in, um, I was eight, I was in third grade and I, um, was riding my bike and I got off my bike, and it was covered in blood. I had started my period. Oh, my God. At eight? At Holy eight. Moly. And um, at eight, my, um, again, a different time. My mother went and got me one of those ridiculous belts with the giant maxi pads. <laughs> I was this <laughs> tiny little person, and I had this mattress pad on. It was terrible. <laughs> so I was like, what is that? Welcome to womanhood. Wear this belt. (laughs) And she threw this book at me on the road to womanhood from like, I don't know, the 40s or 50s. It was terrible. And I thought I was dying. Right. And so, um, I don't know, maybe two weeks after that, um, my stepfather started coming into my room at night. Oh, my God. Oh. So... Um, that was horrible, of course. And, um, I, I, those nights continued almost nightly until I was in sixth grade. Oh my God, Meredith. When my grandparents came and got us from another place that we were living and, um, brought my mother and I home because he had pulled a gun on my mother. Oh my God. And he was completely abusive, not just to me, obviously, but one of my brothers and sexually me and one of my brothers. And he was physically abusive to my mother. Um, I can't tell you how many times I saw him throw her against walls. And it was, it was such a, 
it's an interesting thing when you look at someone and you think, oh, they're so strong. Like, I thought that my mother was really strong. And then you get into the cycle of abuse and you're like, nobody's strong. Nobody's strong. And nobody's safe. Mm -hmm. And no one's safe. And so I, um, you know, all the trust issues that come with that and all of the, um, all of the questions of how do you not know, like towards my mother, like, how do you not know? Why do I have to have this conversation? And I couldn't have that conversation until I was much, much older. Right. And, um, so when you were going through these horrible, horrific nights, was it, um, a couple times a week? Was it every night? For a while, it was, um, it was just a couple times a week. Was he an and addiction he, problem? No. Top, no, God. Okay. No, I mean, you know, in hindsight, probably a sex addict, but, yeah. and pedophile, obviously. Yeah. But he, you know, in the beginning, he would just come in and lay with me and put his hands on my breast and then um, try to kiss me. And then he started putting his hands in my undergarments, in my nightgown. And it just progressed from there. And probably by the time I was in fourth grade, it was probably four nights a week. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. And, and that, you know, it went on for a long time, a long time. And the whole time, you know, I think as a child, you're like, what, what did I do? What did I do? Yeah. I didn't do this. And I remember thinking the first time something happened, I was like, why, what is happening? Like, that's what mommies are for. That's what, you know, like this horrible, um, isolation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the whole time you're like, well, you know, I guess as long as he's not throwing her against a wall, then that's better. Yeah. Like just trying to find a way to, to deal with it. Yeah. Make light of it in a way, like find a positive way of viewing it. Yeah. And so, um, so it went on for like two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. And did you tell your brother? I didn't tell my brother. I didn't say anything to anyone until I was probably 18 or 19 years old. And, and I started going to therapy. Like I, I started at first having these horrible night nightmares about this bedroom and this very specific wallpaper. And I asked my mother about that wallpaper. And she said, um, that was your room here. What are you talking about? And I was like, huh. And then I just started like really trying to meditate and think about what was happening. And like, why would I be thinking about that? And then the more I just worked on myself and really dealing and being present, um, the more things came back to me. And, you know, I th- obviously as a safety mechanism, we block those things out of our lives when we're children, because how could you not? It would, you know, that's the weight of the world. And I'm going to back up to when I was in third grade to you, right after this all started. Um, I completely had a childhood nervous breakdown and had to be hospitalized. Oh my God. And didn't tell anyone, you know, what was happening. And of course, it all started with those, you know, childhood stomach aches. My stomach hurts, hurts. Yeah. And, you know, it, in hindsight, obviously we can go, of course you had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Of course this happened. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it's just an, an interesting thing that, and I can't, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I think, you know, especially then that, that people didn't really go, what is really going on? What's eating you? You know? Well, and then they like, there was no, there was almost no acceptance of it. Like back then there was absolutely no room for any survivor, for any truth. No. It was brush it under the rug and go to school. Yeah. And yeah, I will say even now when, um, when the subject comes up, there has been other trauma to other members of my family, like extended family and different from different people and things like that. Mm-hmm. And when it's brought up, my mother to this day will say the past is the past. Oh. I need to leave it alone. And she's heartbreaking because as I say to her, 
if the past is the past, then why do we have history books? Like, what should we leave Hitler in the past mm -hmm. and never talk about it? Mm -hmm. Should we, you know, not to mm -hmm. like say it, that this yeah. is the same as that, but it's, you know, it's definitely one of those things. You don't want to, you have to talk about it. You have yeah. to say, this is not okay. Because when you don't, kids don't know that it's not okay. Yeah. And that's the problem, yeah. right? So, um, until you know that something's n just not okay. Like you right. just, it doesn't, you're like, well, I guess everybody goes through this. Right. And so, and we just don't talk about it because, you know, we you don't talk about what happens behind closed doors at your, at your house. Mm -mm. Like that's your family's dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it was just an interesting sick time. Right. So you go to therapy when you're 18 or 19 and you've manifest this, you mm -hmm. remember. Mm -hmm. What do you do with it? Um, so I, um, obviously told your therapist, I told my therapist, we talked about it, you know, extensively, right. Extensively. And then thank I, God for your therapist. Seriously. Thank God. And thank God at 18 or 19, because this was pre pre-existing condition, you know, like nothing mattered. And I was fortunate enough as most 18, 19 year old kids are flat broke, but worked in a really loving environment that was all women, for women, by women, and the two amazing women that own this company, um, I started to talk to them about what was happening, and they said, you've got to go see this doctor. Oh. And that doctor worked on a sliding scale, and so I was mm. able to see that person for about $25 a session, right. which would, I mean, that's unheard yeah. of. Granted, it was a long time ago. But but those women gave you a resource that helped you. They gave me a resource. Like they played a huge, huge, significant part of your process. Huge, huge. huge. And that business, one of the owners is still alive, and she is my mentor, and I adore Aww. her. She's amazing. Um, they had this very small company of women and um, did amazing work. I think there were about 18 of us. And over half of us had had sexual trauma. Oh, my God. That does not surprise me at all. And that is, you know, yeah. when you're 18 or 19, you're like, what? Right. The Huge. first time that you're finding out that you're not alone. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit. You know? Yeah. And so I go to the therapist. I talked to her. And she was amazing. And it was amazing to have that resource available that I could afford. Mm -hmm. um, and so I called my mother. Oh. And I said, I need to talk to you. Can we sit down? Can we have some coffee and just talk? And so we did. And she said, I don't believe you. Ugh. If that had happened, you would have told me when it happened. And I said, I couldn't. Couldn't. And um, just like most pedophiles, they are telling you, don't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. It will destroy our family mm -hmm. if you say anything to anyone. And you believe that. Of course you do. And the bottom line is that it should have destroyed our family. Yes. And that would have been the best thing. Um, but you don't know that at that age. And so um, she said she didn't believe me and we didn't speak for uh, a year. Wow. When and did you find out about your brother? Um, when I... After I talked to my mom and we were not speaking for a while, one of my brothers called and said, you know, mom says you won't speak to her. And I said, I won't. And this is why. And it was just silence. Oh. And I said, are you still there? What's, hey. He's like, I'm still here. He was like, that's why our oldest brother went to go live with dad. And I stayed because I wasn't a squeaky wheel. Our oldest brother was a squeaky wheel and he wouldn't let anything happen. So he left. They made him leave. So my mother knew. Oh, shit. Uh, and my brother that I was talking to had also been abused by my stepfather. And we were both terrified to say anything. Of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I think about it now, you know, my brother that was also abused was, you know, he was playing with matches, lighting things on fire. He was destructive. Different. Yeah, in so many ways. And um, 
you know, he didn't have anyone to talk to. And I'm yeah. sure that he also thought that he was um, doing his part to, you know, keep our family together. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we we talked a little bit about it. I didn't talk to him a lot about it because he couldn't. Right. And he has not had therapy for that. Oh. Um, poor babe, but he, you know, he certainly acknowledges the fact that it was, you know, that it was wrong. That it was horrible. It was a horrible situation. And, um, and that more should have been done for us and not to us and all of those things. Um, so yeah, that was a very enlightening conversation, <sighs> but I, you know, I was like, well, that's, that's why I won't speak to her. And he said, well, you know, it's not her fault. And I said, I'm not sure that it, it, that it's not, quite frankly. I mean, it's not her fault. She didn't do it, but she didn't protect us either. And he was like, well, I'm sure she did the best she could. Right? Because that's, those are the excuses we make for our, our family. They did the best they could. And I agree with that to some extent. We do the best that we can with what we have and the things we know at the time. But all of that said... In that moment, when I find out that our oldest sibling was sent away because he wouldn't abide, she knew. Mm-hmm. And she didn't protect us. And that was a shocking moment. It puzzles me because I can't help but think, like, she, she obviously, from hearing you talk about her patterns, mm-hmm. that she wasn't an advocate for herself. Ever. Let alone anyone else. Mm-mm. But it still was all about her. Yeah. It was about her choices, the things she needed, which Mm -hmm. seemed to be always a man Mm -hmm. in her life, codependency, which is probably something from her own childhood. Like it's this whole cycle of just generational uh, trauma. Complete. And she doesn't know how. Like that's the problem consistently is nobody knew how to protect themselves, let alone children, which is like. Ugh. Yeah, like sickening. That's, that's sickening. Exactly right. And I'll fill you more in on that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was um, you know, it was this moment of, oh my God. And when she um when she was younger, she had um been admitted to a mental health facility. Oh. And she um she was diagnosed with borderline personality <sighs> disorder and narcissism. Oh and so, you know, those cycles just are, it's just a bizarre. It struggles with mental illness, like yeah. just in a slew of it. Yeah. And so um, once we did start talking again, you know, of course, we didn't talk about that very often. And um, I think she said um, she never really apologized. But I think that she said, I'm sorry he hurt you. Like, not, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was a very bizarre apology, but, you know, of course, as you want approval from your parents, you want them to love you. And so you're like, okay, she apologized. Yeah. It was the best she could possibly. I mean, if somebody's saying the past is the past, their level of accountability and acceptance of truth is not even in the forefront of their at all. I mean, nowhere at all, nowhere near their mouth at all. Yeah. So, um, Fast forward, um, maybe 14 years ago. Okay. Um, so you're in your thirties. I'm in my thirties. I'm about 35 years old. My mother moves back to Texas. Wait, when did she divorce the stepdad? When I was in sixth grade. Um, oh, so that's how, how you got away from the monster mm-hmm. was her divorce because yeah. the abuse had gotten so bad. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I understood. Had, um, we were living outside of Texas and my stepfather was having an affair, of course, because that's what he did. And my mother found out about it and became hysterical and he pulled a gun on her. And after they had been physical for quite some time and she called my grandmother very upset and very banged up. And the next day my grandparents arrived with a moving van and packed up all of our belongings, and we left. And then um, I think it took us two days to drive back to Texas, and my mother and I moved in with one of her sisters and my uncle. 
and stayed there until she could, you know, get it together to get an apartment for us. And, and that was in sixth grade. And then when I was in seventh grade, she married her last husband. And then when I was in eighth grade, they got a divorce. That was her last divorce. So, wow. Um, yeah. So fast forward to 14 years ago, 35. Um, my husband and I had lived in California for several years and we had moved back to Texas and we bought a home and my mother was visiting and my mother had just moved back to Texas, um, from living in Nevada and she had lived with relatives there. And she told me that she believed one of my aunts was sexually abusing her grandchildren. And I said, and, and what did you do? My mother was living with my aunt, who was allegedly oh goodness, sexually abusing her grandchildren. And I said, what did you do? And she said, what was I supposed to do? I was living there. Where was I going to go? Oh, my God. And I lost my mind. Ugh. And that is when I went back into therapy. And I, um, when she said that to me, I just, I, my, I just started seeing black. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you have to leave my house because... Yeah. I want to hurt you. Right. Like, I yeah. want to put my hands around your neck and yeah. hurt you. Like, you have to leave. And she was like, what? I'm just telling you, I know how you feel. I was like, you don't know how I feel. You don't know how those children no. feel. If you really believe that, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Because they're children. They don't have a voice. And how dare you say that to me? Because what you really just said to me is that you knew all along. Right. But you didn't know where you would go. Yeah. So if you don't know where oh you will God. go, you can figure that out now. Just leave. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I can't be around you. And the whole time as I'm just pushing her out the door so that I don't hurt her, I, um, she's just saying, but I know how you feel. I know how you feel. I'm like, God, no. you don't. You don't. And so we, again, didn't talk for a few years right. because I was like, I cannot. Right. And um, um, longer story shorter, those grandchildren were not being sexually abused. Um, she was just giving them a bath and showing them how to clean themselves. <laughs> oh, my God. So all's well that ends well, right? But um, thank goodness they were not being abused. Yes. And, and I think that that's important to clarify. It is. Um, but um, it, was a, it was a very telling moment and very hard as a oh, grown yeah. woman to go, God, you don't care. You don't care. And yeah. all this time you pretend that you care, but you don't care. And so, um, you know, we spent a couple of years not talking again. And, um, yeah, that was really hard. Um, and thank goodness at that point... Um, my husband and I had been married for quite some time and we, um, you know, he's a rock and mm. he will listen to me all day long and mm. he's like, you are heard and I believe you and you don't ever have to feel unsafe again. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that that's hugely important, right? Because we have such a hard time trusting people after you go through an experience like that. It did manifest itself in me doing a lot of drugs throughout high school. Uh, I had a high school boyfriend that had a giant trust fund and we spent most of that on cocaine wow. and ecstasy. And that's what we did. And escape. Um, Out of escape. But I was not sexually active um, for, you know, a really long time. I was with my high school boyfriend for a couple of years before we ever had sex. And um, I was very much, a, don't touch me. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll kiss you. I can kiss you, mm -hmm. but don't touch me. Mm -hmm. And to this day, um, I don't like for anyone to touch my breasts. Like, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Like, please don't do that mm -hmm. because that is how it all started. Right. And it's so triggering for me. Yeah. Um, of course. Especially for someone to touch my nipples. I'm like, you cannot, you cannot. This shuts down right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, obviously 
you know, that's, I'm sure, unfortunate for any sexual partner I've ever had for me to just go, nope, and we're done. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was not, I was not sexually active for a long time. And I certainly was never super promiscuous or anything like that. Mm. I didn't get, you know, fucked up on drugs and then go have sex with any and everyone or anything like that. Um, I was, I was very shut off. And, you know, for a long time, it took me I think my husband and I were married for years before I would even change clothes in front of him. Mm. You know, bless him because (laughs) who marries that crazy person? But he was, you know, he was absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, the whole time during our relationship and, and all Mm. those things, I, he was, you know, he was amazing. Mm -hmm. He is amazing. Um, but it certainly, in other relationships, I certainly went psycho when certain things happened. Like yes. I was just like, you know, self-sabotaging relationships like yes. crazy. Yes. Because I didn't want anyone to get close because people just fail you. Mm-hmm. And um, would certainly self-sabotage so that I could end those relationships um, before anyone else did. I wouldn't really, you know, I, I'm certainly not reactive attachment disorder crazy, but certainly a not good mm-hmm. I don't need to I would date people and not know their last name like not have sex with them you know mm-hmm. again I'll kiss you mm-hmm. we would go out on dates and never knew their last name because I don't care you're not mm-hmm. staying right don't need this you knew it yeah. you know yeah and so um you know I and I saw lots of people that had the opposite reactions they were very promiscuous they may or may not have done a lot of drugs or drank right. a lot and things like that. But well, I think the addiction thing is like a, almost just as a given yeah. if, if people get exposed to it because mm-hmm. it's escape. Like, yeah. Just numb, numb yeah. me, please. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, uh, that was, and you know, all of those things yeah. were very interesting and, yeah. um, you know, it was the eighties. So <sighs> yeah. it's yeah. not like, you know, all of those things were so prevalent and, yeah. and doing ecstasy before it was even illegal. You just went to a gay bar and bought it over the counter. In Dallas. I mean, I don't know if right. that was the way it was everywhere, but, you know, I was in high school and I was buying drugs with a right. credit card at a gay bar. Right. So. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It was lots of fun, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so did, did you, have you, did you ever confront your monster? So I have, I've not seen him, um, since I was 15. Hmm. Probably for the better. Yeah. And really. at 15, I didn't really remember all of those things. Still. Yet. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, he called my mother, my, they had been divorced for a long time. He called my mother and asked if I could come and visit him. Oh. And she sent me. No. Mm-hmm. And I went because, you know, I didn't. He was my stepfather and, you know, I don't know why she said yes. I don't know why I went, you know, all of those things. I will say nothing. He didn't try anything at that point. I'm sure I look too much of a woman at that point. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, because I was fully, you know, my breasts were developed and again, started my cycle at eight years old. So by the time I was 15. Yeah, you are. You know. Grown woman. I wore a double D you know, bra and, you know, all of those things. And so I didn't, I didn't fit what his needs were at that point. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness, you know? And so I never had a conversation with him about it. Once I did start therapy, um, I did write him a letter and drop it in a post office box, you know, like dropped it in a mailbox and I didn't know really where to send it. Um, I didn't have his last address. I just knew what city and state he lived in, and I sent it there. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? But it was a healing thing for me. And right. I, and, you know, this is – so this is a weird thing for me. I I believe that – I believe a couple of things about trauma and, and sexual abuse. I believe that we are as sick as our secrets, which is why I'm very open about what has happened in my lifetime. And I also believe that um, – if people that are committing those crimes, and they are crimes, um, if they knew what they were doing, like if they knew how sick they were, if they knew the trauma that it caused, I don't think they would do it. 
I would hope they wouldn't do it. Maybe that's wishful thinking. But I would like to think he just didn't know what a son of a bitch and how much he was fucking up my life. You know, he mm-hmm. just didn't know. I don't know. I mean, I think both of those thoughts are, I really like the first one a lot. Like we are only as sick of, is our, is our secrets. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big one. But, and I don't know. I don't know, you know. And I don't know if anybody knows. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just straight, like, addiction. Yeah. Or a fetish. Or, or sociopath. Mm-hmm. Or where there is no feeling behind it except for feeding, fueling, yeah. and, yeah. you know, like, ego um, power. Yeah. And multiple abusers. I mean, I think it's like, I don't even know what the percentage is because I'm no expert. I don't know, really know anything about life in general. But like, I think it's like 90% have been abused themselves. Right. Right. And that's something that I talked about with my therapist once we started thinking about having children in my marriage. I was like, what happens? Yeah. Why is that so high? How do I know that I'm safe? Right. And my therapist said something very interesting to me, and I love her. She said, you know, the the thing about people that continue that abuse cycle is they never question it. They never look back and go, mm-hmm. what the fuck happened? And they certainly never ask, am I okay? Mm-hmm. She was like, you know that it was wrong. You felt it was wrong then. You know it's wrong now. And the mere fact that you question it, you're good. Yes. You know? And thank God. Yes. You know? And and. Obviously, if there had ever been any doubt in my mind or my husband's mind or anything, we just wouldn't have had children. Right. Um, but yet, that's so true. Is yeah. the accountability is off the table. Yeah. Usually, like, all the time. Yeah. So the fact that you're even acknowledging that it's happening is so huge. Yeah. Um, how is your relationship with your mother now? And how was all that with your father passing? Yeah. So is my relationship with my mother now is okay at best? It's just Okay. When my father passed, the first conversation that we had um, the night that he went into the hospital, um, we started talking about a cousin of mine who has mental deficiency and who has sexually abused his daughter, one of his daughter's friends, et cetera, my cousin, his sister. Whoa. And I said, it's so fucking sick. And he grabbed my hand and he said, it's wrong. And he said, and I'm sorry, I didn't protect you when you were little. And I was like, what? And he was like, I didn't, I didn't do right by you. I didn't take care of you. I'm sorry. I didn't protect you. And that, that man was able to do those things to you. And I'm sorry. And I was like, oh my God, out of all the people that should be apologizing, it's not you. Like, right. you're amazing, and thank you for that. I That brings me a certain yes. amount of peace. Yes, that's like that, so much comfort. That I never expected to have, and yeah. I appreciate that so much, but you don't owe that to me, but oh my God, that's huge. Thank you. Yeah. And he said, I do owe that to you. He was like, you're my baby girl, you're my only girl, and I didn't do right by you. And so from there we had amazing conversations for the next month. And I was so thankful for that month of like, I'm glad you're not sick for years and years, but I'm so glad that you didn't just drop dead of a heart attack. And we didn't get to have this moment Yeah, because I, I was like, I am good. I fucking win. (laughs) Like I win. And I, you know, it was an amazing thing. And I didn't expect that reaction from myself. I just thought you don't owe that to me. Yeah. Oh my God, I have this huge sense of relief that you said that to me. Well, it's like almost as though um, (sighs) desperately waiting for one parental person in your life to say truth. Right. And to step up and and to step up and say, like, hey, I am sorry that you went through this and I didn't do enough for you. Like, those words are huge, regardless if he's the blame or the shame, any of it. Like, it almost doesn't even matter. It's just the fact that there's a person that believes you and says, this happened. Yeah. And I wish I would have done more. Yeah. It's huge to hear that. Huge. Huge. And so we continue to have amazing conversations the whole last month of his life. And 
um, as he was in his final few days, um, and the family is gathering and telling him it's okay to go and, and giving what we hope is that sense of peace so that he can finally let go. Um, and he was, you know, had almost, he was almost not able to speak anymore. Mm -hmm. Get out a few whispers every once in a while, every once in a while he would sing a line to a song (laughs) and we were like, this is it. You know, um, I leaned over and I was holding his hand and I was like, I just want you to know that our conversations over the last month have given me so much peace and I hope that they have you too. And just know that we're good. And I love you and you were a good dad. And you did the best you could. And we are awesome. We're golden. And he squeezed my hand twice and he said so much peace. Oh, because he's probably lived with that. Yeah. My whole life, his, you know, and so. How did he know? Um, I tell everybody I am like, you know, my grandparents know, my aunts and uncles know, like everybody knows because it is not my secret to keep. Uh, I don't need to keep it a secret because yeah. fuck that man. Yep. Absolutely. And I, um, you know, it's such an interesting thing because we're so, we're so trained to be ashamed of ourselves. And I look at that all the time and I'm like, that was not my fault. I was a no, child. No, I was right, a child. Right. And, you know, I think that sometimes people get caught up in, um, you know, do, well, what did you do? Did you sit in your daddy's lap? Did you, it's like, well, you should be able to sit in your daddy's lap. You right. know, you should be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that shouldn't arouse him. Right. Because fucking weirdo, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I really, um, I got really sick of hearing people say that that man was the love of my mother's life. And I was like, really? Let me tell you what that love of her life did. And let me tell you what he did to her, you know? Um, and so I just don't keep those things secrets. And I, um, I didn't feel like it was a healthy thing to do. And so I had told him and, um, and when I told him he was shocked, like almost speechless, just like, you know, I can't even imagine what was going through his head that that's a message that he would deliver to me, you know, 20 years later. And, you know, after I told him and so, yeah, I mean, it was really, um, it's such a bizarre thing to say that when one of your parents passes, that it was an amazing event, you know, but I'm thankful to have that month. I'm thankful that I had a job that I could sit in a hospital for a month with my father. And they were like, you're good. Can you take this meeting? Can you step out of the hospital room for a minute, you know, Mm -hmm. for an hour? Yes, I can, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, um, I was very fortunate in that regard. And so, um, when I think about his death, I couldn't, I couldn't ask for more mm-hmm. than the way it all ended. And it has been an amazing, healing, cathartic thing for me. Wow, Meredith. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on and meeting me and spending time with me. I loved meeting you and getting to know you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your remarkable story with us all. Meredith's a really good example of how uh, you can find your trauma and find your truth, but still yet carry so much compassion and kindness in your heart. And it's really important, especially in this world collective trauma, as we are all looking at what our survival modes are and dealing with all these different things. Just remember with compassion, it can, it can help us. It can help us all. And if we're all together in this with compassion, we can conquer pretty much anything in the world. For Meredith's nonprofit, she picked Jonathan's Place. The website is jpkids.org. Jonathan's Place provides a safe place, loving homes, and promising futures for abused and neglected children, teens, and young adults. It's in Garland, Texas. They're pretty rad. They have so many different programs that they offer. They offer foster care, emergency shelter. They have a girls' therapeutic program, transitional life 
a national safe place and a, a reset program as well. It's pretty great. I will post that link on our website. Um, and as always, my nonprofit is Rahab Sisters, but this week I am purposefully promoting QueerCovidRelief.com. Please go there and donate or buy a t-shirt and support vulnerable queers at this time. They need it. Ah, so please take a moment and follow us on uh, WBY Pod on all the social medias. Get on Apple Podcasts, review us, rate us, tell us what you're thinking. Please email me. Let me know if you have a story you want to share. And oh my God, next week we conclude season one with Mandy. And oh boy, buckle up people because Mandy's story is whoa. Whoa. I've saved this one for the very last as it's completely mind-blowing. Can't wait to share it with you. And again, lead with compassion, lead with compassion, lead with compassion. It's all we can do. I love you. Thanks for listening. 